Welcome to Neo Academia, where the walls of the ivory tower are shifting. I'm your host, Natasha Mott, and this week I sat down with Greg Sadler, you know, that philosophy guy on YouTube. Greg is a professor of philosophy currently teaching at Marquette University in Milwaukee. But 12 years ago, Greg started putting his lectures on YouTube and hasn't stopped since. He's amassed thousands of videos and hundreds of thousands of followers. His videos range from Aristotle to Schopenhauer. Greg is a great example of an academic who applies his philosophy in and outside the university. So I asked him to come talk about it. But before we get started, I've got to tell you, Neo Academia is possible first and foremost because of you. There's a lot of incentive to keep the system the way it is, so we neo-academics have to carve our own path. I appreciate you for exploring these ideas with me. Your attention is everything. And if you're interested in making better use of your attention, I got you. Neo-academia is also possible through support from Readocracy. Readocracy is on a mission to save the internet by making how we inform ourselves matter. So they've created a first-of-its-kind technology that rewards people for consuming high-quality content. Readocracy makes the content you consume count, awarding points, badges, LinkedIn upgrades, and insights into your information diet. These insights are like a Fitbit for your mind. They can help you understand how your information diet is affecting how you think and feel. Readocracy has won awards and backing from Mozilla and Betaworks, and is used by curious minds at Stripe, Cisco, Zoom, and over 30 other top companies and schools. Neo Academia is proud to be sponsored by Readocracy and has a series of collections curated by me and each of our guests on Readocracy.com. And for access to the Neo Academia resource collections, head over to theorygang.io forward slash newsletter for this episode's show notes. Now let's explore. I just reached out to you on Twitter and I'm very anti-Twitter. Since I decided to put PhD in my bio, people are like, oh, you're not just some troll. I, I mean, I'm still a troll, but, but you know, I'm yeah. just doctor troll. That's interesting because there's a huge debate about whether it's okay for people, especially women to put PhD into their bio, mm -hmm. like they're trying to show off or something. Mm -hmm. I mean, my, my point of view is everybody should put whatever title they want to. And if somebody has a problem with it, that's, that's on them. But I'm kind of surprised that you didn't get a lot of blowback from putting your PhD in there since so many other people have encountered that. I, I am the one who gives blowback about it because, <laughs> because I, I hate the credentialing. I just okay. think, especially today when, what does a PhD mean anyway? I'm sure philosophy is different, but in the biomedical sciences, they pay you as slave labor to go and do all the research and then they write the grants. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the paid is slave labor thing, I think is across the board, whether you're in the humanities, social sciences, natural sciences, fine arts, you're, you're not getting paid what you, what you deserve. Right. And you're right. being, your work is being sucked into somebody else's stuff. So if you look at textbooks, most textbooks are not written by the person who claims that, that they are on, on the title. It, it's their grad students who are doing a lot of the work mm -hmm. and it results in pretty uneven quality. <laughs> so, <laughs> the grad students aren't getting paid anything remotely close to what their labor is generating, right? Because right. those textbooks are bringing in tons and tons of money for the presses. Right. I think there's this big issue with people putting, like when people put PhD in their signature or bio or whatever, it's a signal. I went years without having it in my bio and I just went as a pseudonym theory gang because I was working in corporate biotech and I didn't really want my opinions to be, because they were not exactly in the corporate biotech sphere. 
And so I didn't want them put out there, but then I put my name and my bio and my picture and people were like, oh, okay, we accept you. I do see some people who do the, they've got four or five different <laughs> sets of, of initials after their name. And that, that to me seems a little excessive. You wonder what that's all about. You just kind of go, what, what are you trying to prove at this point? What are you, what is your, yeah. <laughs> like you have the full alphabet after your name. And that's my, my main issue with it is it's all about credentialing and how important you are. And that's why I didn't do it for a long time because I actually was under the false assumption that maybe ideas would speak for themselves on Twitter, but that's like good ideas on Twitter, I think really fall to the wayside. Balanced ideas fall to the wayside. What really gets promoted on Twitter is trash. <laughs> a lot of it. Yeah. I'm, I'm fortunate in that I've been on it since 2010 and I didn't really take it seriously for the first couple of years, in part because it just wasn't very good back then. They they had us all sign up for it in some faculty development thing because somebody was very bullish oh, wow. on Twitter. But then I started seeing how you could use it. My number one bit of advice about how to use Twitter, just block anybody who's an asshole. Yeah. And then you're you're and the same thing on YouTube or Facebook. Mm -hmm. And the quality of your 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 experience rises dramatically. And I I block preemptively. If I see somebody being a jerk <laughs> to somebody else who I like, I'm like, I'm not gonna ever want to have a conversation with that person. They're blocked. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I, I have unblocked a few people who have written me and said, oh, I, I realize I acted like a jerk. Could you unblock me? I've I've done that. But the the number of people or percentage of people rather that, that want that is got to be less than one tenth of a percent of those who actually do get blocked. So yeah, I found this especially to be true on TikTok. Oh, okay. That, <laughs> have, that's a that's a domain I don't know much about at all. Oh, so. it's TikTok is wild, and I think you have to have there's a certain zhuzh to TikTok that you have to kind of be willing and able to capture people in 2.5 seconds. But yeah. the blocking function on TikTok, I do live sometimes when I'm putting on my makeup just to okay. shoot, shoot the shit. And I had one guy come in and he was like, can you unblock me? And I'm like, like you're here. He's like, yeah, you blocked my other account though. I'm like, maybe there's a reason. <laughs> <laughs> but I think this is important. And for a while I was not keen on blocking because I was blocked by someone who okay. shall remain nameless, who is kind of a big figure in biology. And I didn't know this person, never even heard of her until I found her retweeted by someone else that I follow, who I'm not really a fan of. And then I saw that I couldn't see her stuff and it's, she had blocked me. Okay. Yeah. And so that was, that was quite interesting and unexpected. I had a different reason for not blocking that much at first, which was that feeling that marketplace of ideas, you got to let everybody have their say and stuff like that. And then I realized that whether it's your Twitter, Facebook feeds, or like YouTube comments, it's sort of like my front porch and mm. I don't have to tolerate jerks being on my front porch, <laughs> blathering on, you know, it's not like if I block them that they can't go anywhere else and say whatever the hell they want to. Right. So it's not as if I'm the only outlet for their, their possible blathering, complaining, whatever it happens to be. I think I've given people too much of my time. Yeah, so that's a good way much, to put it. Yeah. The, it's the attention is so valuable these days. And there's a lot of really cool people I want to talk to. So, yeah. <laughs> and you know, I, Billy Bob, who's being a jerk is not one of them. 
I just turned down, this is in a somewhat different context. Somebody emailed me an editor of a journal and it was about the person that I wrote my dissertation on there. Can you review this paper for us? And I've made it my policy for about a couple of years now that I don't do uncompensated work for people who are making money on mm on the work, especially journals. The markup for these articles is incredible. And I've done the thing before where I would say, what's your offer? What are you going to come up with? And, and the journal editors are always like, we don't have a budget for that. And then I'm like, I don't have a budget for you then. And now it's just very short and sweet. They email me and I say, it looks like an interesting article. Hope you find somebody to handle it for you, but I don't do uncompensated work like that because my time is, is, is valuable. I will say I do make exceptions for like really close friends who are editors. Sure. So like the St. Anselm journal, I'll, I'll sure. do reviews for them, but the stuff that's owned by these, these giant companies, I do feel bad for the editors because it's, it's getting tougher and tougher to find people to do that uncompensated work, but I don't have to do it just because I feel bad for them. <laughs> Wait a second. So I've done journal reviews because they were kicked off to me by a PI. Or yeah. Whatever. Yeah. But, so you're telling me that academics are now demanding compensation for editorial. Very reviews? few, very few of them. Like cool, well, hot YouTubers. I think the people who've realized what a racket it is and are, <laughs> I don't know that they necessarily have to have a following or something. I think just a lot of people are fed up with the willingness of these these companies to use uncompensated labor and then charge the same people sometimes you you can even publish a piece and not have access to it yeah. in the journal because uh -huh. of your library not not having the full jstor or something yeah yeah that, that's you just guys nuts have to me. sci hub as well because i know i know sci hub exists for like actually all domains like pretty much anything i've ever looked up on google scholar has yeah a yeah so this is, this is an interesting topic where I didn't expect us to get into, but in terms of what, what we would consider now, I guess, cutting edge philosophy, which is what you would be reviewing, right? I, I, I don't know that that much philosophy <laughs> is, I don't know that cutting edge is, is like a, a usable term anymore. For That's what I mean. It's, you know? it's, yeah. it's new. It's pushing. Have you ever seen the graphic? I think the guy's name's Matt who does it, but it's a circle and it says, this is the boundary of human knowledge. And then when you do a PhD, you're supposed to poke. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. You know, that's the cutting edge. It's the poking edge, right? Yeah. Cutting edge, I think works better as a metaphor for technology and for fields that are convergent, like mathematics, mm -hmm. uh, the natural sciences, medicine, things like that. I don't know that sometimes my wife, this is a little bit of a different metaphor. You get, we're both academics. We also do a lot of other stuff as well. And, and we have a lot of time pressures, right? And so sometimes we feel a little bit stressed or guilty about not getting things done when we committed to having them done. And the phrase that we use is there's no heart in a box. It's not as if we, we miss a deadline and we turn in something <laughs> two days late, like a cancer patient Someone's is going to die or yeah. something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think it's kind of similar with cutting edge, cutting edge qua this little group over here that considers it to be really cutting edge or advanced, but there's no like consensus even in, in about what philosophy is or what counts as doing good philosophy in the philosophical community. So, so I don't know that there, you can, you can say something's cutting edge, but that doesn't actually make it so. <laughs> <You know? laughs>
Well, okay. Then this leads into a question I really want to ask, which is yeah, why the fuck do we need to be in academia to do philosophy? Oh, we don't. So what do we need? What do, what does academia do for philosophical inquiry? It really depends on the place. So if you think about the United States, right, we have about 2000 or so colleges and universities and most of them have some sort of philosophy program, but a lot of them, maybe it's just two people teaching in a department, teaching the, the gamut of undergraduate classes. And so we could say that there's, we strip all that stuff away, right? Even though they might be doing some interesting research and publishing something, you know, it's not as if their classes aren't as good as classes taught at big flagship universities or Ivy League universities, because talent is pretty evenly distributed. The people at the elite universities, in my experience, aren't any smarter or better scholars or anything like that. They just happen to have way better connections and mm. usually have come up within a, a hierarchical system. So you can do philosophy all over the place. And what, what you're doing is going to look very different depending on where you are. So you could go to a place to study with this person who you're really into, and then they go on sabbatical and leave or something like that, right? On the other hand, you might like, as I, I did, luck out, and I went to Southern Illinois University. I was essentially first generation college and had no idea how any of the stuff worked, but I applied okay. to them because they had a really cheap application fee. <laughs> and they got, they got back to me the quickest with the most money. So I was like, okay, I'm going there. <laughs> right. And it turned out they had an amazing research library and a department where at least half of the professors were, were pretty good and could, could, you know, clue you into cool stuff. And it wasn't very narrow and restrictive. And you could take classes with other graduate departments like speech communication or English, or we had some taking poli-sci classes. And so it was a ama an amazing place to be, but I wound up there just by luck. And then I would say like 10 years later, it wasn't an amazing place to be because all the budget cuts had come in and people had left and it probably wasn't an amazing place to be 10 years before I got there either. And and you don't know, right? Yeah. So, and a lot of this is luck. Right. <laughs> so what, what would you get out of studying philosophy in a rigorous academic way? Like in my case, because of taking these preliminary examinations that no longer exist, where we had to like essentially memorize vast amounts of reading and then be able to synthesize it in, in essays that you had three and a half hours to write, I wound up with this really great depth in the history of philosophy that served me really well, not just when I went to teach undergraduate courses like intro and ethics and stuff like that, but talking with ordinary people. Like I can take Descartes and explain mm -hmm. why what he's doing could matter to the, the proverbial Joe Blow on the street, right? Right. But that... I think that's kind of a, a random factor because there were a lot of people who took those prelims and just hated they it. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. So, but what does this have to do with academia? Couldn't, I would say maybe what you're saying is kind of access to environment, resources, yeah, people, yeah. culture, assessment, and it's all, it's supposed to be in one place when you're a student. So, yeah, although that's a good point. Should it all be in one place? Part of what I benefited from 
was going to other institutions. So great example is I, a lot of my publications are on St. Anselm of Canterbury and I've done a lot of videos on him as well. And, and sometimes I get booked to give talks about, about Anselm. That was not something that came out of Southern Illinois University Carbondale because they didn't really care about Anselm. That was from me sending out a paper proposal to the first St. Anselm conference at St. Anselm College in New Hampshire with the Institute of St. Anselm Studies. And then they kind of sucked me into being interested in uh. this medieval thinker. And again, totally random, right? I met these two monks that were cool guys that kept on asking me to do yeah. stuff. Father John Fortin and Father Pascal Baumstein. Love a cool monk. Love a cool monk. Yeah. The Benedictines, that's that's the way to go if you're looking for cool monks. <laughs> Forget the Dominicans and Franciscans. What about Tibetans? I mean, we're well, that's like, a whole different cool list, I thought. Yeah, I, I have no idea because I, I don't I don't I don't hang out with a lot of Buddhists. So in any case, so like that would be an example of you you get something from going somewhere else that you're mm -hmm. not getting in, in your place. But again, so much of it is is fortune or luck or however you wanna define it. There's no one single way to go about it. So that being said, we're talking about learning philosophy yeah, yeah, versus yeah. kind of practicing philosophy, which is a, a applied thing anyways, mo for the most mm -hmm. part, right? We could talk about it theoretically all day long, but most people are, are actively applying philosophy, whether they are doing so consciously or not. Yeah. And usually not well, right? Not um, well. <laughs> I mean, same thing with like, cause you can have the theoretical side, all your beliefs and cognitions and stuff like that. And that could be like a hot mess over here too, right? They're applying from... shit, basically. They've exactly. Got yeah, yeah. Terrible theory, terrible application. Or um, misunderstood theory, right? Think about the adolescent boy who reads Nietzsche oh, and no. is, oh, I'm going to be an Ubermensch and be a jerk to everybody. And that'll be like putting me in touch with the best kind of life, right? Clearly they've misunderstood what Nietzsche was saying because that, that isn't all that's going on there. And then you reread Nietzsche as like a 30 year old or 40 year old or 50 year old. And you're like, oh, wow, there was a lot of stuff I was, I was missing there. So it could be that there's good philosophy, just not, not for you, the reader at this particular point in time. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that's, that's an interesting, philosophy is such a broad thing to apply. And when I think about it in terms of an academic perspective, I just kind of go, I kind of think like, for what? I understand people <laughs> writing for real. I No, I, no, I, I'm, I'm with you on that at this right? point. 30 years ago, I think maybe, you know, there were more jobs, right? And right. Th there weren't as many opportunities to apply it outside of the academy, although a lot of philosophy people back then were like going into business as system analysts. That was mm -hmm. a really popular thing mm -hmm. at the time. But yeah, I, I think a lot of people in academia, they look at um, anybody who goes through all the, the career path stuff in academia and then doesn't work in academia, they're like failures. Oh and yeah. They're, they're Failure like, uh, right here. Yeah, they're yeah. they're uh, how how did they put it? Popularizing, debasing philosophy, <laughs> debasing, all that kind yeah, of stuff. yeah, 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 absolutely. I think the same is true in in biomedical science. There's this big thing about science communication. Okay, and it, and as we know, what happened with the pandemic, there's an urgent need for oh. science communication. Yeah, but the problem is a lot of people don't trust the science communicators, and sometimes for good reason. The science communicators. They're perceived as not being as rigorous 
not asking tough questions. And so with what happened with the pandemic, I actually got, I had a little beef with a, with a science communicator. It was because I posted a Chevy Chase meme <laughs> and it was like about, it was about Thanksgiving and it was basically saying, oh, oh really? I'm not allowed to go hang out with my family for Thanksgiving. Fuck you. I lived in Portland and yeah. so Portland was locked down and they were telling people if you if you see anybody at anybody else's house, call the cops. And so the, my, my main beef with these science communicators and what we would call like the debasers, <laughs> I guess yeah. in the philosophical realm, is that they take themselves and what they do so seriously. Second of all, the science communicators aren't appropriately applying philosophy because they're not okay. understanding people's worldview. So my main issue around COVID was that some people are going to be higher risk tolerant and within their own circle, how can you tell them how to live their life philosophically? Yeah, there's kind of a catch-22, right? If you insist on making things meet the standards of rigor, and sometimes those standards are pretty loosey-goosey anyway, that academia has, then it's it's a bit more difficult to communicate with ordinary people, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. On, the, on the other hand, if you're coming from academia, ordinary people always have the ready, oh, you're just a ivory tower academic. What do you have to say to me? Kind of thing. So you can get it from both sides. Right. Right. And they're, and they're viewed as part of the institution now, I think. So that's another hurdle to overcome. So yeah, it's not yeah. just conspiracy theorists now. Everybody's, I guess, a conspiracy theorist because with what happened again with the pandemic, people were saying one thing and then they were saying another thing. And people who don't understand how knowledge transfer goes through the pipeline, they're saying like, see, now I was a conspiracy theorist and now I'm right about this. Now I'm right about that. But they're viewing the institution with mistrust. Yeah, with skepticism, you could say. Right. Yeah, I, I think there, that probably varies from institution to institution. You have a certain amount of social capital that you can burn through fairly quickly. So like the CDC, I would say prior to the Trump administration, had a lot of mm -hmm. credibility and trust. Definitely. And then they they managed to erode a considerable amount of the trust that they they had. You can look at this over the course of decades and see this happening in a lot of different professions, that erosion of of trust. And I don't I don't know. I don't know if you ever get it back once you've lost it. Right. And I, I fear that's what's happening with academia. I just saw Nate Silver tweeted something that said he thinks universities should be meant to seek the truth. And then secondarily to advocate for political use yeah. of the truth or whatever. And somebody got really mad. There was a whole bunch of <laughs> tweets and retweets and said, that's a conservative view. If you think, if you think the university's main goal should be truth, capital T truth, got this big change with what the university is perceived to be doing. Yeah. I, I kind of think that the whole thing is a non-starter to begin with because universities don't have a single goal as huge, complex, historically generated institutions. It wasn't even in, in the medieval universities, it wasn't like the sole goal is to find truth or even that's the overarching goal. It was to prepare people for professions and, and truth plays a role in that. But mm -hmm. your terminal degree in the early universities was either in theology or mm -hmm. law or medicine. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's great to have truth, but you also need to like do a whole bunch of other things. And the universities have always been political, mm -hmm. no matter 
universities and colleges, creating a teacher's college in some place is a political decision about what that area needs as far as resources. And that, mm -hmm. that's in the United States. That's where a lot of our universities grew out of was originally teaching colleges mm -hmm. or, or theological institutes. Think right. about Harvard, right? Mm -hmm. was originally a, a seminary, if I remember correctly. So I, I don't know. Nate Silver is going to get himself in trouble no matter what he says. <laughs> he's, he's sort of, he's kind of stuck in that position no, no matter what he says. Somebody's yeah. going to find objections to it. But I think you can say that there's a lot of legitimate ends or purposes or goals for universities. And the trick is to figure out how you're going to coordinate them so that they're not interfering with each other. Mm -hmm. And some of the stuff that's more pernicious is when a university is basically treated as a money-making enterprise. We got like... Isn't that what's happening? I mean, so I, I read a while ago, I was really interested in this. I read yeah. the use of the university by Charles Kerr. And he, he kind of went through the history, especially of American institutions and what yeah. they were for. But you're right. There are many interests, many stakeholders that are supposed yeah, to yeah. be under the umbrella of the university. And then there's colleges within the university. But it does appear that it has turned into a, largely a money-making machine. And what is the well, business now? That's Yeah, that's a function of a lot of universities. And it's not just a money-making machine. It's it's like funneling money to the, to the people who are in administrative positions mm -hmm. because the staff aren't getting paid in, right. in a lot of these places very well, in, or even the, the, the instructors. But, you know, that, I mean, you could have generating enough money to have security for the future, protect the endowment and make sure that the lights stay on. And that could be compatible with all the other less financial Im imperatives. The problem is when that becomes like the overriding goal. Right. So, well, and, and the other problem is I think at least the way I'm looking at a lot of these things, I've got a college here in my town that keeps calling me to come teach and it's a for-profit college. And I'm like, mm -hmm. Yeah. I, don't I imagine they're, they're not offering very much either, right? Not compared to what I was making in industry, but yeah. I, it's like a steady paycheck. And I'm like, no, I'm kind of doing this podcasting thing. This is much more academic in my mind than anything they could offer me. The interaction with students at a for-profit college is way different. I know? imagine that it's probably got some overlaps with students at community colleges and in schools where the professional universities and colleges where the professions run everything. So for example, I'll, I'll dish a little dirt on our local place that I'm going to be teaching at again this semester, Marquette University. Marquette University bills itself as a Catholic Jesuit university and they they do a little bit of uh, window dressing every so often. I'm, I'm being brought in to teach a capstone class that is okay. officially about faith and justice. And that that's nice. But when you look at the decision-making that goes on in administration, especially you start moving up higher and higher in it to, to like the dean level and, and beyond, it's clear that not only is Catholic social teaching not guiding the decision-making and the values, it's actually antithetical to that, mm -hmm. the way that they, they treat their staff and their students and the faculty and, and what, they, what they pay people. And so you can have this incredible 
disjunct between them. And, and who, who are the administrators responsible to? Not to the faculty or not to the students. They're responsible ultimately to the board of trustees who are just those same people, rich people who, who've done something and made some contributions to the university, and then they get essentially get to call the shots. And so there's a lot of cases like that out there. So in a, in a, in a case like that, what ends up happening historically is the the core, which was theology, philosophy, English, history, all these humanities that were very important to Jesuit education, keeps getting shrunk. They're down to just having one required philosophy class, whereas in mm -hmm. the past they had two or they had three. Same thing with theology, same thing with writing, same thing with history. And the, the professions, dentistry, nursing, physiotherapy, right. the law school, they're the ones who are essentially calling the shots. Mm -hmm. And that attitude that students might have at a for-profit college of, I'm here, this is mm -hmm. an instrument for me to advance myself. That's very much there in, in these yeah. professions. Unless you, sometimes I get them in my classes and they, they might get a desire for philosophy, sometimes even change their majors, which often creates problems with between them and their parents who are. <laughs> you were supposed to be part of the PMC and yeah. now you're a philosopher. I, I, I had somebody who just a couple of years ago, he was in one of my classes and he didn't, he didn't switch his major to philosophy. He was like business finance or something like that. And he changed it to English. And he came up to me oh. at the local coffee shop and he's like, I don't know if you remember me. And I, I could remember his face, but I couldn't remember his name because I've taught so many students. And he was like, yeah, I changed to English. My parents weren't happy about it, but there it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. and it, part of it was who we are studying in our philosophy class. We weren't doing the watered down kind of stuff that that people sometimes do for, for the, the, the undergraduate students, there's this tendency to think, oh, they're not, they're not really smart or motivated. These business or fashion or nursing majors, we're slumming, hanging out with them. So we're <laughs> not going to bring the good stuff. Why shouldn't we share Plato and Descartes and Mary Wollstonecraft with them? We should sort of like having people over and you don't get out the good china you, you get out like the cheapest crap <laughs> the, the paper plates paper right plates, like, yeah yeah paper plates for you put, put all your stuff in the trash <laughs> don't put it in the dishwasher afterwards because we're not even going to bother with that well if you do that people realize that you're you're holding back you're not giving yeah. them the right stuff so that's why that brings me to kind of what we're doing now, which we're ta I'm talking on this podcast with people like mm -hmm. you who've created YouTube channels where you bring out the good China for everybody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if they break it, you can always get more. So, <laughs> well, that's an interesting topic. Can people break philosophy? If someone's going to listen to your Hegel conversations on a regular basis, I feel like you almost want them to be breaking it, right? They're like, they're coming to your house and eating the amazing food that you prepare. Something's going to get yeah, yeah. broken, right? Yeah. Ideally, you don't want them to be like just standing there throwing dish after dish on the floor, right? <laughs> uh, like people sometimes do, but yeah, a little bit of breakage I think is, is fine. And, it, and this, this shows us the limits of the metaphor too. You, you're right. You don't want people just to watch the video and be like, Ooh, Hegel, so, so smart. So amazing. I can't possibly challenge him on anything that that's not a very healthy attitude to have, but you do want to, them to understand before they, they start criticizing. Yeah. So Epoch philosophy, I've been talking with him a little bit and he tweeted okay. something the other day. There was a video on Marcuse. 
okay. where they, somebody said, I'm so glad you're bringing these commies to justice or something like that. I think <laughs> I read that thread. Yeah. It's like, what? <laughs> Did you watch the video? I feel like a Slate Star Codex. There's a lot of people, he wrote about Guy Debord recently. So there's a lot of, especially okay. media theory, what I'm seeing, where people are taking these philosophies and kind of testing them out for themselves and seeing what they think. Adorno, Horkheimer, I hear this everywhere, especially within kind of the meme community. Yeah. Although most people who talk about Adorno don't understand Adorno at all. He's very, very difficult. And dialectic of enlightenment is the, is the work that he did with Horkheimer. Mm -hmm. When you read Adorno on his own, I've written one thing on him over the course of my entire career, because I find him so difficult to, to work on. And I'm somebody who was into him. So I, I think there's probably a lot more sort of, and it probably does have to do with sort of like a, almost like a meme-like thing. There's mm -hmm. a lot of people who have gotten a take on Adorno from somewhere, and it's probably not accurate. And then they keep replicating it, just sort of like fake quotes. Do Which is fun. Yeah, I yeah. saw your Medium article about the about the the fake quotes. So I guess this would be an interesting question. What do you yeah. think is kind of the biggest problem, the biggest broken dish or potential for broken dishes in our metaphor of when you popularize the kind of stuff like what you've done, what have you seen? Oh, you've created all these amazing YouTube videos. Where have people yeah. gone off the rails with what you've done? I'm, I'm pretty careful not to talk about people unless I really know their work well. Whereas I think there's just, we'll call it the internet sphere. I think there's a lot of really garbage takes on pick any, any philosophy mm -hmm. or philosopher that you want. And, and I think this goes for literary figures and, and history as well. So for every well-researched video on Nietzsche, there's probably a dozen just garbage takes out there and, and they may get a lot more traction because mm -hmm. they're glitzy. They, they put their work into production rather than into the, the thought behind it. And there's entire channels, I would say that, that basically consist in garbage takes. Big ones. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and some of them have, some of them are just like quote stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And they don't source the quotes. And so, and sometimes they don't even get the person right. So like Epicurus and Epictetus, two different, totally different philosophers. <laughs> totally different. There's, there's a lot of people who will take, they'll go on Google, they Google Epictetus, they find Epicurus's picture and they put it into their quote video. And half the, half the quotes aren't actually by Epictetus. And they're doing it basically just to like, either, either to make a buck or for clout. So I think there's a lot of that out there. The good thing is when there are like whole communities out there as well, they're like this, this stuff's garbage, go check out the, the real stuff over here. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I suspect that's probably always been the case. A lot of these fake quotes turn out to be from books that are like digests of maybe quotes by different people mm -hmm. from the 1800s because it was popular just to put a whole bunch of stuff together, kind of slapdash and then sell it mass market to, to people who then would like, you know, I don't know, maybe sitting on the, the toilet or something, reading these. And they're like, oh, that's, that's a cool thing from Pythagoras there. I can use it in my next conversation. <laughs> so there's, yeah, I mean, there's, and there isn't like a remedy for this other than just keep putting out the good stuff, I think. So what do you think is the best way to engage with people online who are interested in your mm. material and want to go deeper with you on it? That's a good question. I mean, I, I don't know that there's a 
single way. And this is sort of a broader question too. People will often come to me and they'll say, okay, I'm going to study philosophy. What's the reading list that I have to follow? Or is it okay if I read Aristotle and I haven't read Plato yet? And, <laughs> and they're very nervous about like doing it wrong. And I've got, I've got this <laughs> metaphor that I actually, I didn't come up with. Wittgenstein came up with this for, for a different purpose. Philosophy is like a massive city, Chicago or, or New York or someplace like that. And you, you can never visit everything to begin with, right? You're, you're not going to see most neighborhoods and that's, that's okay. Cause you don't have to, and you can approach it from the North or the South or whatever, whatever direction you want to. And you come in and at first you're like, I don't know where the hell I am. I think I recognize I'm in Chicago. I see the Sears tower. You can recognize a couple landmarks. Oh, I think I, I heard about this Plato guy. I think I've heard about this Descartes guy, but you, you got to spend some time in the neighborhoods to actually know your way around mm -hmm. and know know what restaurants are worth going into and which ones you should avoid. And then you can go to another part of the city, right? You know, this neighborhood, now you get to know this neighborhood and you just kind of move around. Think mm -hmm. about yourself as like a, a tourist. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that's the way that people can uh, approach studying the, the history of philosophy. And it means you can always come back to your same neighborhood too. And if you Right. read Plato and worked your way through his text. There's nothing that says that it's wrong for you to reread all that. Right. I think I'm more of a vagabond. I tend to like to detach from ideology and okay. kind of free float a little bit wherever I can. Yeah. Do you think, okay, now we've got a new metaphor here we're introducing. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think is the role of philosophy kind of as we move forward for people in the is it going to be, are people going to be more attached to their own neighborhood? Are they, and then also you've got all these big billboards now yeah. you know, with guys out there with shiny, funny YouTube videos saying like, move to stoic town. True. True. Yeah. And most of those guys with the big billboards are going to be there to sell you stoic challenge coins and other paraphernalia that has. Oh, don't talk about that. Now we're talking about the challenge coins. Uh Oh yeah. And people get like stoic tattoos and, and you're like. None of that has anything remotely to do with the actual philosophy. It's sort right. of like going to the county fair and eating all the shit food that you're going to regret the next day. That's not the point of the fair. I haven't been to one for a while. I used to go to check out the animals and take my kids <laughs> on the rides. And... You've got to get the fried Oreos though, man. Yeah, but you can't live on that. That's you know? true. That's um, true. You I can't mean, live on you, the challenge you, you points. Can, you can have it as a treat, but... That's not a, that's not a healthy diet. These metaphors are killing me. We're just <laughs> in a wandering metaphor podcast. Yeah. I love it though. So you've done, you do a lot of stuff. You do, you do. I'm looking at this list of things that we talked about. <laughs> like you do tutoring, philosophical counseling, a bunch of courses. You do editorial work. Yeah. You write. Your medium is amazing, by the way. Oh, thank um, you. Radio show, Stoicon. What do you, what do you love doing? What's. What's the like highlight of your career that they couldn't pay you not to do? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Hey, Greg, here's $50 million, yeah, yeah. but you can never do this again. <laughs> <laughs> what would it be? It wouldn't be coordinating Stoicon, which, which is a lot of work. It probably wouldn't be the radio show either, even though I like doing it because that's a lot of work as well, well. You're telling everybody what you don't want to do. You might as well move into the things. No, you I still, love. I still do want to do it, but, but if somebody paid me 50 million bucks, it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. I would probably 
still want to be out like giving talks about philosophy. I don't, I don't know if somebody gave me 50 million bucks and they're like, you can never, you can never upload anything to YouTube again. I'd probably take the 50 million bucks uh, with the proviso that everything that's already there gets to stay there. Okay. But you've done uh, a lot. I mean, you've been on YouTube longer than Joe Rogan. <laughs> that's people don't really like Joe Rogan his, was wandering his, around eating bugs or whatever. His, like his rise certainly has outpaced mine. <laughs> How can you compete with the things he does though? Yeah. Know? It's funny that you brought that up though. Cause he, for me, he's never going to be anything other than the fear factor guy <laughs> who is he, not him eating bugs, but getting other people to eat bugs. Right. right. It's and I, I have a, a very hard time taking him seriously as a public intellectual. If it wasn't, it, 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 he's, 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 he's an not. interesting interviewer. Yeah. He's not the intellectual. He brings the intellectuals on and he can keep up with them. Sometimes I think sometimes, yeah, sometimes. sometimes he's like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, man. Right. But you've been on YouTube a long time. You've got, you've gotten a lot, you've put I got out a lot of content. Yeah. And I got into it at the right time. So at the time that I got into it, I think at first you could only upload a 10 minute video mm. and then it was like a, a 15 minute and then it was 20 minutes. So that's why you see like a lot of old videos. I've taken mine down that, that were like that and just consolidated them. But mm -hmm. a lot of these older videos, they'll, they'll be like part one, part two, part three, part four. That's, mm -hmm. that's where that came from. Right. And then YouTube just opened it up and they're like, make your videos as long as you want. And I, I think that was around maybe 2011. And then people were uploading things that would be like eight hours long. Oh my God. <laughs> You'd be like, who the hell's going to watch this? Right. right. And, and I got into it as a skeptic actually. Yeah. My wife, Andy, she is an early adopter of technology and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm much more not politically conservative, but sort of like curmudgeonly conservative. <laughs> well, this, this shit's never going to work. Right. Right. So who's going to watch this crap? And she suggested I should start recording videos in my, my classes, what's called lecture capture, just so that students would have it as a, a resource. And I was teaching four sections of the same class at that time. So Oof. it, it kind of made sense to do yeah. it. Right. So I did that and then it took off and I, I was very skeptical. I was like, nobody's going to watch this. I'm a nobody teaching at some little university in, in North Carolina. And she's like, what do you have to lose? Go ahead and put it on there. If people make fun of you, you can delete their comments or you can respond to them, whatever you want to do. If people like it, then, you know, it'll help some people. So I did that and I was just astounded by how many people who weren't my students were like weighing in. And the funniest comments were, my teacher won't actually answer questions or my teacher is talking about this stuff, but I can't understand a friggin' thing this guy is saying. Mm -hmm. And so my videos were, they were serving as like a resource mm -hmm. for people who, there's a lot of terrible philosophy teachers out there in yeah. academia. Oh, it's really Ter terrible, not just in communication, but also like morally, because if you're getting paid to teach and you won't answer your students' questions, that's a real problem. Right? I don't really understand that, but some people are just jerks. They take There's... themselves very seriously. And this is an academic yeah, thing yeah. that I've seen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're obviously not that guy. You're, you are very knowledgeable and also approachable, which yeah. Uh, it's probably why you've had a lot of success. It helps to not be from an academic family, I think. Okay. It probably also helps to have worked a lot of ordinary person jobs yep. rather than academic jobs. 
And it also helps to teach all those classes for non-philosophy majors semester after semester, because those are the toughest to teach. You have to communicate with people who, first of all, don't want to be there. Right. Very few people are like, holy shit, a philosophy class. I'm going to take that, man. <laughs> yeah. Some of them are kind of anxious. They think that philosophy is this thing that's way above them and they're too mm -hmm. stupid to get it. And then some have kind of an attitude coming in and you got to be able to reach those people. So you have to show early on that studying Plato's apology has some relevant things to say about their own life and their, mm -hmm. their culture, right? So it, it's kind of like a, an apprenticeship in a way, just without anybody guiding you. you mm -hmm. It's the material guiding you and you figure out how to teach it effectively. People, I have a big list of people I wanted to come okay. on the podcast and you were on it because you are unique in that you put content out from an academic perspective, like you're teaching in your class. Yeah, yeah. And it's made it. It's been very popular. And so the, the vast majority of content creators aren't coming from the inside of a classroom. Yeah, but yeah. The fact that you've had this level of success bringing the inside of academia out yeah. is remarkable. I think a lot of it, to be fair, is like being in the right place at the right time. I think it's probably much more difficult if you were going to start up a channel right now, it's probably a lot harder to break in. Unless you read the Unabomber Manifesto in a female voice and you're the only one who does it. <laughs> but give it another 10 years and there'll be like 20 people doing that, right? Right, right. So yeah, if you think about like different niches that developed in YouTube, like ASMR, right? That wasn't around <laughs> when I first got on there. Right. I think it maybe that's like eight, nine years old. If you're going to do ASMR videos now, I think it, it would be a lot harder to get people to say, why should I look at this channel's thing? Everything's been done already. So that's not the case in philosophy. There's lots of thinkers who I I've, I've, haven't gotten to and probably never will. And other people are, are doing them and, and maybe doing them well. And so there's a lot of of room, but you're talking about a discipline that goes back in the West roughly 2,500 years. So there's lots and lots of authors along the way. You're kind of being a tour guide in your areas of the city that you kind of like to hang out in, that's, right? That's exactly it. You're like, I'm, try the hot dogs. <laughs> I'm, I'm not like going over the entire city. And a lot of people get upset because the, the biggest one is Spinoza. Why don't you have videos on Spinoza? Why don't I'll you? be like, hey, if you want to pay me to not do other stuff and to focus on your pet philosopher who you're super into and probably don't understand 90% of the people that are <laughs> like super into Spinoza probably don't understand right. him then cool. And, and nobody ever takes me up on that offer, which means that they, <laughs> they want to get something for free. Right. And they want to, they want to kind of boss you around. I don't know, maybe someday I will do stuff on Spinoza, but for right now, there's so many other gaps that I want to get to, mm -hmm. um, that I, I have legitimate needs for, like I'm teaching a class this coming semester, which is centered around anger. So I'm going to do stuff on Aristotle on anger and Seneca's book on anger and awesome. Plutarch. Yeah. So, but if, if I'm doing that, I can't be doing this thing over right. here. And so it's, it's like the city, there's big parts of the city where somebody's like, where's your tour guide stuff on this? And I'll, I don't have any, <laughs> you want to hire me to like go into that area and map it out for you? Sure. I'll do that. But right. you got to pay me because I'm otherwise I'd, I'd be doing this and this and this and this over here. Right. So you're, so some of your bread and butter still comes from teaching and 
you really, you like right, yeah. teaching. You really, you would continue to do that if you got the 50 million? That's a good question. I would still teach, but I would teach whatever I wanted to teach. And it sure wouldn't be stuck in a 15 week semester format mm -hmm. because it's so tough to, to cram everything that you need into mm -hmm. the confines of an academic class. And I, and I probably wouldn't do an awful lot of grading because that's the part that I dislike the most. The essays. Yeah. I wouldn't be like Zizek who's, we'll make a deal. You don't write your shitty papers and I won't grade your shitty <laughs> papers. I'll give you all the grade instead. <laughs> Student work is important, but I don't think I would want things to be as grade centered as they, they are in academia. Right. There's so many students that are like, they're like the go-getters and they're like, what do I have to do to get a, to move from a 94A to a 96A? And you're like, you're getting an A. From what I've found, there's certain people that I love interacting with. There's yeah. people who have all these questions and they're the kinds of people that make you think and you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't think of that shit. That's the kind of grading I want. Give me all the interesting papers to grade. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things that I do like about my client-based work is Everybody who's seeking me out, it's because they've seen the videos and they're like, yeah, I, I think I'd like to work with this guy. And I know that they're committed mm -hmm. and they might have some instrumental things like, well, I need to write this paper so that I can progress in my class or, or pass my A-levels or whatever it happens to be. But for the most part, and this is the same thing too with doing speaking gigs, people are there because they want, they want to be there. They want right. to be engaged with what you're, you're talking about. Whereas uh, academics, if you start with one quarter of the class, maybe caring about what you're talking about, and you get to the point at the end of the semester that three quarters of them care, you're probably doing pretty good. Because you know? yeah. I would guess the average class, less than half actually care at the end of the semester. Yeah. You know? And even, I feel like even people who are very curious are like that as well, just because of the structure yeah, yeah. of academia, where you're like, I just got to get through this. And I wish I had all the time in the world to think about Spinoza. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, Plutarch. I'll tell you a funny story. So one of the classes I teach pretty frequently is business ethics. And I was teaching it at Marquette. And back then, this is before they changed the core, there was a required ethics class that all of them had to take either as freshmen or sophomores. And now they're in my business ethics class. And the very first day of class, you know, after we did our introductions and, and all that kind of stuff and went over the syllabus, I said, all right, so I want you to take three minutes and get out a piece of paper and write down everything that you actually remember from the ethics class that you took. And I also said, say when you took your ethics class. So it could have been last semester, it could have been two years ago. And it was amazing that almost none of them remembered anything from their ethics class other than like some utilitarianism yeah. and maybe one, one person had a little bit of Kierkegaard and Levinas. It, it, it was, it was clearly a professor who like turned the class into their own playground. <laughs> and I, and then I, I was like, now think about this from a business perspective. How much did you pay to take that ethics class? And <laughs> if you look at their tuition, it's about five grand right? They ripped themselves off. <laughs> it could have been that the, the instructor wasn't any good, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But if they didn't retain anything mm -hmm. anywhere from previous semester to two years later, they pissed that money away. Mm -hmm. They satisfied a requirement to, to graduate, but if they don't remember anything from their class, boy, that's, that's <laughs> what kind of product is that? It's sort of like, I, I guess, going to a really fancy 
restaurant and you like go, you splurge. Like we went to a Russian restaurant once in, in Atlanta when, when my wife was down there for a conference and it was like up high up, like the top floor in some place. And I don't even remember what we had for food. All I remember is we got this flight of flavored vodkas, vodka. infused vodkas, right? Yeah, yeah. And I don't know what the bill was at the end, but it was, it was significant. All I remember is that we had a flight of vodkas. I don't remember what they tasted. <laughs> I don't remember what meal we had. I remember we enjoyed ourselves. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. And you could say it, it was so cool because I could brag about having been there. I don't remember the name of the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> So this is my point about academia. I have a friend who writes all these articles. He's, I don't know if he's interim chair right now, but he's an astrophysicist and he okay. writes all these articles about how in the state of California, a lot of people are getting passed through mm. these upper level math and physics courses for various reasons. And then they get to his class at the end and he's like, bro, you don't know calculus. <laughs> yeah. Like that's a problem. It's unethical really yeah. on the, on the state level for education. Where is philosophy right now in that realm? <laughs> Hello? Philosophy is like the, yeah, philosophy is sort of like the black sheep of the family relative who shows up and might be asking people for money and has, has some, some good stuff has to offer. Has a YouTube offer, channel, kind of. Philosophy is not highly regarded in, in most universities, I would say, but you can say that about the humanities in general, they're, they're definitely living on hard times. I um, think an interesting point brought up from this discussion, we were talking about how people are questioning the course material in almost everything. They're talking about equity and what we're teaching in courses. And then they're bringing inquiry into the course such that yeah. it's no longer didactic. It's epistemological where they're mm -hmm. kind of questioning what are you even teaching? And and then a lot of these professors are kind of going, am I supposed to teach this course? Like I want open inquiry, but like we have to draw the line somewhere. And so yeah. I was like, why aren't we bringing these questions to the philosophy department? <laughs> oh, because the philosophy department is probably tied up with the stuff that they're doing and staying afloat. Yeah, but I mean, that, some... this is like so relevant. This is a huge crisis in academia and we need yeah. philosophers to kind of step in well, and referee. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know that I don't know that they can referee effectively cuz cuz a lot of them aren't that good at Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and you're right. So epistemological crises, ethics, critical thinking, history of ideas, all of these are things that ideally philosophy people should be pretty good at. It's always tough to get people to agree to a third party judge. Hmm. And I would suspect that a lot of the people that you're, you're proposing should bring these things to philosophers would probably be pretty dismissive of philosophers. So That's I, I don't, that's insane. Well, sure. Yeah. But you're preaching to the choir there. And to be fair, philosophers have done kind of a crap job on the whole at representing their profession. We've, we've kind of run the gamut. Do you want to talk about Stoicon? So Stoicon is an international conference. So this will be 10 years of holding it. It was originally face-to-face -face and it went online in 2020 because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And then we realized that as opposed to having like a physical location where we could maybe get 400 people, we can offer it online and we can have anywhere from 1400 to 2000 people on it at any given time. So that's, that's what we do now. And it's going to be held October 29th 
if you don't know much about stoicism or anything about it, you can still go to Stoicon. As a matter of fact, it's great for people like that because they get to hear some of the, the big heavy hitters who give talks or write books or things like that. And I, I'm just coordinating it and I'm seeing it. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's a lot of really cool people involved, some of whom I'm lucky enough to be friends with. Chris Gill, for example, great researcher. Nancy Sherman is going to be on our, our book panel, as will be Donald Robertson and my co-editor of Stoicism Today, Volume 3, Leah Goldrick. And so it's going to be a, you know, like a whole day thing. It's a great way to learn about all things Stoic. Yeah, awesome. So we will look for you with Stoicon. And where should people go? The easiest thing, I'm really, really fortunate in that if you just Google Gregory Sadler, all sorts of stuff comes up. If you, if you want to find my stuff, it's super easy just to put <laughs> that into Google and, and all these different things will come up. The YouTube channel. The... Yeah. Oh, this has been so fun. Yeah. I, I've really enjoyed this. Yeah. No, I love this. I'm so glad you agreed to come on. And uh, even though I have no episodes of this podcast yet, <laughs> you're just like, that's, I'll that's trust okay. that you're... You're not an absolute psycho. I appreciate that. <laughs> you never know with me too. Maybe the videos are all good, but you get me on and I'm, I'm a crazy guest. Could go both ways. You're a little wild. <laughs> Gregory or Greg, I'm calling you Greg. Like we're best Either friends. one is fine. We're besties now. <laughs> hey bestie. Hope you had fun exploring philosophy with Greg and I today on Neo Academia. For show notes, bonus content, and a curated collection of resources described on the episode, make sure you're subscribed to theorygang.io forward slash newsletter so next episode you can explore the shifting walls of the ivory tower straight from your inbox.